Welcome back to Tapping Into Crypto, the podcast for all things cryptocurrency. Today, I am joined by Stefan Levera, and he is the host of the Stefan Levera podcast. He also is the managing director of Swan Bitcoin International. We chat about layer one and layer two protocols, along with the Lightning Network that is absolutely changing the world, particularly when it comes to payments. Lightning is something that is seen to be solving the scalability problems of Bitcoin. We talk about those along with a few issues that are highlighted when you do your research on Lightning and whether they really even matter. We also chat about El Salvador and its increased adoption of Bitcoin and the benefits that's generated for El Salvador and who we think is going to be next. So whether you're a beginner, a Bitcoin veteran, or just crypto curious, I am your host, Alicia Chapman, and this is Tapping Into Crypto. Welcome to the podcast, Stefan Levera. It is so good to have you here with us today. Thanks for having me, Alicia. Now, Stefan, most people are going to know exactly who you are and probably have listened to your podcast. For those that haven't found you, can you let us know a little bit about your background and how you came into the crypto world? Sure. So I had a background and a strong interest in Austrian economics. My position of being anti-central banking, anti-fiat money was essentially what led me to this. And so for me, like most people, the first time you hear about Bitcoin, you just think, oh, it's just this, whatever. Like, you know, and so for me, the first few times, maybe 2010, 2011, but you disregard it because you just think, oh, whatever, right? Late 2012, early 2013 was when that changed for me because I had it explained to me the right way. Hey, this is an open source protocol. It's a new system that may someday represent a challenge, an improved form of money. And so now, obviously, that's, you know, going back, what is it, eight, nine years now. And now, I host Stefan Levera podcast and I'm also managing director of Swan Bitcoin International. So I work as part of the team with Swan Private. And so I help when we have, let's say, a high net worth individuals who want some guidance coming into the space. I'm one of the people who's helping them in terms of giving them some guidance if they want some tips on how to use Bitcoin and things like that. And I also travel around a lot for Bitcoin conferences and events to stay close to the community as well, to stay up on what's happening as well as find out who's good to interview for the show so that the listeners can also get an update on what's going on in Bitcoin technology, economics, privacy, all sorts of things. A true evangelist now and really living and breathing all things Bitcoin, which I love to see. Now, going back, the question that we ask everyone to the podcast is what and when was your very first cryptocurrency purchase? So obviously Bitcoin, uh, I'm Bitcoin only. And so that was basically early 2013. But I don't want to kind of go too into the other details of it. But yeah, like that was basically when I first got into this stuff. And obviously, I got into it around then. And what's your investment journey been like since then? Have you had that conviction the whole time through the ups and downs and all of the roller coaster that we've been on since 2013? So essentially, part of it is coming up with your own thesis. What is this thing? And so for me, Once you have that thesis of, I think this is going to be the best money, I think this is just going to be a better money, then you really, really want to hold on to it. But of course, over the years, there were times where, let's say, your enthusiasm for it might wax and wane. And because as an example, right, we're speaking now today in February 2022, but in the bear cycle of 2014 and 15, it wasn't so clear that Bitcoin was going to come back per se. So at that time, my interest a little bit waned, so to speak. Like, you know, I didn't necessarily sell the coins, but I was sort of a bit like, I'm not really sure, but I'm still holding just because I still had that fundamental belief. But by the time the 
next bull cycle of 2016 and 17 came around, it was just like so much easier. And then by the time that next bear cycle happened of 2018 and 19, it was a lot better because you had a lot more confidence about this thing. There was a lot more material being put out there, high quality material. And it just felt a bit more like, hey, this thing is coming back. It's not just dead. Whereas in 2014 and 15, it wasn't so clear. So just a bit of insight from uh, years gone by in Bitcoin. And I feel that so much, even if with the cycle that we're in right now, if you've been in the game since even like 2017, the people that were around then are like, oh, this is just what happens. This is crypto. It's fine. It's volatile. It'll come back up because they have that conviction and they know that long-term play. But for so many people that have just entered in December, they're like, oh my God, the world is ending. I have to sell it all. And it is like, once you've been through it a few times, I feel like those bumps get easier and easier, especially if you've been in it as long as you. Yeah. I think that's a great comment, Alicia. And what it is, this is a common pattern, right? So people, you've got to remember, we are fundamentally human and we are very momentum chasing. And so the reason some people are jumping in at the top is because you're seeing a lot of other people who've jumped in. And so you're thinking, oh, okay, yeah, I better get into it now. But what happens is a lot of people come in without a proper thesis. Obviously, because you're new, right? Understandably, you're new to this thing and people are sort of confused. What is this? What, what is this world? And only after you've gone through a, a dip, then there are people who actually try to learn, wait a minute, what is the thing that I've just bought? Oh, okay. Now it's time to read the Bitcoin standard. Oh, it's time to listen to Stefan Levera podcast. Or it's time to, you know, try and really learn what it is, this thing that I've bought. Am I just a fool for having purchased it? Right? Because these are the questions people are asking themselves. But over time, as you improve your knowledge of what Bitcoin is. You learn a little bit of monetary theory, a little bit of economics, a little bit of computer science, and just the basics. Not necessarily everyone has to go and become an expert. You start to get a bigger picture and then you start to build your conviction for the long haul. And that's what really does you well. Because when you hold for the long term with Bitcoin, that's when people have done really well. Yeah. Well, you don't have that panic. Like, because you believe in the tech. And and even if there's a dip in the market, the tech's not going anywhere. They're getting better and even more incredible developers every single day. The tech's getting better every single day. So that if you look at it on paper, there's no reason for the volatility. It's just the market being the market. So I really love that sentiment as well. So we mentioned it in the intro. And what we're going to be talking about today is layer one, layer two, particularly when it comes to Bitcoin. We had our episode last week and spoke about all things Ethereum. So Stefan, can you explain layer one, layer two at a high level, particularly when it comes back to Bitcoin? Okay. Yeah, great. So in Bitcoin, when you run your Bitcoin wallet that interacts with the network, and when you send a transaction, every Bitcoin node on the network sees that transaction and the miners will then mine that into a block, right? And so the point being, we can't have every transaction ever happen on every computer that wants to track the Bitcoin blockchain. And so what happened over time, and a really interesting book is The Block Size Wars, for anyone interested, Jonathan Beer of BitMEX Research. And basically, there was this big scaling battle. And so this happened across, call it 2015, 16, 17. And basically, the result of that was that not every transaction has to go on-chain, as it were. Mm -hmm. So, Meaning, some of those transactions have to be taken off layer one and put into layer two or into other ways of transacting. And so we can think of Bitcoin, it's really more like a settlement layer than it is a day-to-day transaction layer. Now, to be clear, today, you still can use Bitcoin on-chain for transactions. You can still do this. But over time, we expect that the fees of that will rise. And so people will use other layers. So a very basic example is, let's say 
we both have our retail banks and those retail banks might do that for us. Because here's the thing, most people listening, if I were to ask you the question, like the listeners, do you understand how the fiat banking rails work? Do you understand that there's, okay, there's Fedwire or there's, you know, or if you're in Australia, you know, the RBA and like the, all the different, no, you don't, you just use the money because your bank sets this up for you. But in Bitcoin, we're sort of doing it the hard way because we're trying to set it up in a way that's more distributed. And so let me bring it back to answer your actual question. Think of it like layer one is where we do our Bitcoin on-chain transactions. But for other types of transactions, we can use other layers. So obvious example is Lightning Network. Another example that's maybe not as cool is just custodial scaling, right? So just let's say bank-to-bank transactions or Bitcoin bank-to-Bitcoin bank transactions those transactions might not necessarily have to happen on chain. So historically, the likes of Coinbase or Zappo, they had a system where internal customer transfers never actually went to the chain, so to speak, to the blockchain that everybody, every Bitcoin node is watching and participating in. They would just do an internal ledger transaction, right? Just kind of like netting off inside. So we can think of layer two is providing additional functionality. And so probably the best Example really is the Lightning Network, but there are others such as sidechains that arguably are also helping in terms of providing more scale. So let me explain a little bit about why we're doing this as well, because the point of Bitcoin is to be a distributed, decentralized system. But if you made it so that every Bitcoin node had to track every transaction ever, then very quickly, not everybody would be able to run a Bitcoin node. It wouldn't be accessible to the retail, everyday guy or girl to run their own Bitcoin node. Whereas today, you can do this on quite cheap community hardware. You can run a Raspberry Pi node or even just on your laptop, you can run a Bitcoin node. But imagine if if you were to start really trying to scale on-chain, so to speak, and raise the block size, then essentially the problem is that not everybody could run it and it might tend towards centralization. And if that happens, then the overall decentralization and the qualities of Bitcoin that we like could be threatened. So that's essentially why there's this interesting and delicate dance of what things can be done on chain and what things cannot be. And so that's where this whole conversation around layer one and layer two happens. And so we can get more into detail if you like around like how does that actually work, but that's the high level answer. Yes. And it's such an incredibly exciting conversation. Like there's so much to unpack here. And I really, I would love to dive into the Lightning Network a little bit later on. Um, before we do, do you think like these layer two solutions that are being built, they're being built as you touched on to it to increase speed, right? Like as one of the factors that we really want to see is that speed and ability to kind of bring the world together and allow more and more people to utilize blockchain and, and Bitcoin in particular. Do you think that we're going to be big enough to compete with the schemes? And, and by schemes, I mean Visa and MasterCard. Yeah, yeah. So I actually believe some of them will eventually be dragged and kicking and screaming into the Bitcoin and Lightning world, right? Like they have crypto teams and some of them are sort of focused on things like, you know, CBDCs and things like that. But I think they'll eventually come to Bitcoin and Lightning. And so there's a massive advantage for people who are really have their eyes on the prize right now, because you're getting into the game now on the ground floor with Bitcoin and Lightning. Because... Bitcoin and Lightning is going to enable, as you said, much faster transactions and also much cheaper transactions too. And so the interesting thing as well that really has to be thought about here is that it's not credit. That's really like when you really stop and zoom out, when you tap your credit card, that's credit going. Mm. So 
there's all these other costs associated with that because there could be chargebacks, there could be fraud, there could be card not present for fraud as, a, as an example. And all of these things have costs built into them. But when you make a lightning payment, it's fully reserved. It's not credit. You're actually giving that other participant the ability to unilaterally claim those funds on chain. And so that's just a categorical difference. Now, what does it look like in terms of if we can lower those fees? I think, again, some of it's a bit speculation because we don't know exactly where it lands right now. But today, you might be paying something like 0.2 to 0.4% on the Lightning Network as a transaction fee. And that's essentially an instant payment, just like sending an email pretty much. Whereas if you pay on-chain in Bitcoin, that fee is more dependent on things that are going on in the Bitcoin block space market, whereas the Lightning Network is able to do fees in that kind of range. Now, if you use a payment processor, maybe a Lightning payment processor, you're paying a little bit more than that. You may be paying 1%-ish. But think about this. If you're using credit cards, you're paying probably 3%, 4 5%. But here's the trick. It's a thing. Most people don't know they're paying that 3 4 5% because merchants have built that into the cost of what they're actually selling. So I think there will be an incentive there, an impetus or a reason for people to use Lightning, even just for that. But I think the important part is not just that also, but there's also new kinds of services that will get opened up. So for example, there's podcasting 2.0. People can stream sats, satoshis. And so there are other kinds of applications and things being built out that may be really interesting and really cool. So for example, Bitcoin DLCs, discrete log contracts, might actually be used in gambling markets in, in years to come. Now, it's, it's early stage right now, but these are some of the ideas that could be done in the Bitcoin ecosystem or adjacent to the Bitcoin ecosystem that are really going to you know, blow people's minds all on top of being the world's hardest money, right? The act, this open protocol with a strict supply cap that people can use as their savings technology. Mm, yes. And I, I personally come from a payments fintech background. So completely hear you on those fees that merchants get charged. But for an everyday consumer, they probably, as you said, don't know about that. And so when you are walking into a store and you're tapping your phone, as you said, there is every single time you tap that phone, that merchant gets charged additional for that particular thing. And so there is such an exciting potential here for where we can go and and who could be a merchant as well. Like, you know, how those payments can be facilitated, even down to how we transfer money to each other across the world. You know, in my own business, paying some of my contractors overseas is so challenging right now and rife with so many fees. And so something like Lightning, again, really just takes that away. So let's dive into Lightning because some people won't even have heard that before this conversation and think, okay, cool, guys, what are we actually talking about? So what is the Lightning Network and what does it help us to do? So the Lightning Network, you can think of it like this way of us taking transactions off the chain. It's called off-chain scaling. And so the idea is instead of us doing every transaction on-chain, every time paying that fee, which might be a dollar or so at today's prices, it can vary. We are doing one transaction to open that channel between us and then one transaction to close that channel. So let me start with a really basic example and then we'll take it from there. So as an example, let's say I open a channel to the UU Alicia and I put 1 million sats in that channel. Mm -hmm. And that would take one on-chain transaction to set up that channel. And then we could transact back and forth very quickly and easily, very cheaply, because these transactions don't all have to hit the chain. So we're not paying a Bitcoin blockchain fee, we're not paying the miner fee to have that hit the blockchain. And so we could transact back and forth, 
and then close out after a thousand transactions. So you can see we've netted out a lot. And that's not even just Lightning Network, because now Lightning Network is not just that, it's actually a network of channels. So it's not just me to you, you might have a channel open to somebody else. And then I can pay that other person, even if I'm not directly connected to them, because Lightning Network includes this functionality called multi-hop. So you can multi-hop. Now, I understand this could look a bit complicated, but for users in practice, basically all you're doing is you just get a Lightning wallet, you scan a QR and you hit send. So easy as it looks, yeah. That's essentially it. So in Australia, there's a well-known one called Wallet of Satoshi. There are some others out there, such as Phoenix Wallet. I like that one. Breeze, so that's B-R-E-E-Z. That's an easy one to use. What else is there? Moon Wallet, M-U-U-N.com. So these are all some very easy ones. So as an example, if you're listening to this right now and you're like, okay, I want to play around with this, M-U-U-N.com. You can play around with that. Install it on your phone. Send, you know, maybe two hundred dollars or just a small amount that you don't care about, and you can play around with Lightning. And so, as an example, you can go to a website, uh, bitrefill.com, and you can buy vouchers for your groceries or various things, and you can just pay with Lightning. So, literally, you'll see it, and it'll scan, it'll pay, it'll, and it'll basically happen instantly. And you'll just be like, "What? What did I just <laughs> do?" And interestingly enough, note for these wallets, you don't have to use KYC. Uh, so it actually opens up accessibility too, because it means there are hundreds of millions of people in the world, maybe even billions, who don't necessarily have an easy documentation or proof of address and things like this that they would need for normal KYC documentation. So it actually opens up access to the market because now you can set up, you can just have a phone. Most people have a phone and they can use that to create a Bitcoin Lightning wallet and receive funds straight away. And so there's obviously there's some technical wizardry in the background. That are, you know, we can get into that if you like, but that's the high level of what is being enabled there. And touching on a lower requirement for KYCs, and a reminder for you all, KYCs, know your customer. Obviously, it increases accessibility and really plays into that whole decentralization piece. But what do you think about the risk profile and how it all comes across? It's You're right, it's a double-edged sword. But I think that's part of our journey of conveying really this is distributed. It's an open system. And that's part of it, right? So in the Bitcoin world, there's a actually kind of a famous saying in our Bitcoin world. I believe it was Taj Dreiger who popularized it. I think he said, Bitcoin is the money of enemies. And so it's like this idea that we have to get used to this idea that both our friends and our enemies will use Bitcoin. We can't stop them. And I understand that you could at first think, whoa, well, hang on, how do you stop criminals and things? Well, I think it comes down to old-fashioned police work, right? It just comes down to that. Instead of using the financial system as the way by which you police things, well, that's no longer an option now. This technology exists. It's out there. It can be used. And I essentially say, well, we're going to have to buy the bullet there because ultimately, the fraction of people in the world who are criminals is very small, right? The actual overwhelming majority of Bitcoin users are not criminals. It's only a very small fraction who are. But you know what? Sometimes perception is uh, an important thing to try to manage because sometimes people have this perception of, oh, see, it's all criminals and Silk Road and drug money laundering, whatever, you know. Yeah. And I think like if you play that back again, like today, the world we live in, there's cash and a lot of stuff gets paid with cash that has no record and people can't trace what's happening with that. Like it's... Cash is going away. Something is going to replace it, whether we like it or not. Yeah. And I'll just add something there as well, because I did an episode with uh, a gentleman named Ron Pohl. Now, he 
talks about the ineffectiveness of AML because basically he's pointing out the numbers saying, look how much compliance cost it's pushed onto businesses. Look how much money has been thrown into doing all this AML. So for listeners who don't know, anti-money laundering. And basically it's all these record keeping and collection requirements on businesses and transaction monitoring requirements and a whole bunch of things. And basically for all this cost, criminals have still been using the normal fiat banking rails. They've just found ways around it or they've even paradoxically, they've benefited from it because they've found ways to quote unquote bless unclean money by getting it KYC'd through a mule or through some other means where they continue to use the system. And so this is actually part of why I believe AML laws should be abolished. But of course, I understand that's not a very popular view, but I believe that a lot of people uh, have this false mindset about what AML laws are actually doing when the reality of it is that they are simply not very effective. Mm. There's not much bang for buck. Very interesting perspective. And and there's so much here. We could literally talk for days, I think, just on this topic. But going back to lightning as well, it's not something that I personally feel has had a lot of attention. Why do you think that is? Why hasn't everyone started chatting about this? So there's different reasons for it. I think with the lightning network, it depends on what you're following. So as an example, in El Salvador, the entire country has Bitcoin as legal tender. So that's, call it six and a half million people who can use Bitcoin on the Lightning Network. And some of them are using, say, Chivo Wallet, which is their government wallet. But of course, you can use other Bitcoin and Lightning wallets. So that's an entire nation who theoretically can. Now, of course, not everyone in El Salvador is using Lightning right now, but it'll take time. And I think it comes back to that journey that we're going on of Bitcoin becoming the money of the world. And I believe it's going to mostly move through stages of store of value first, medium of exchange, unit of account. Now, for some people, it's all three of those things today, right now. And some people are very advanced in how they want to use it for transactions day-to-day right now. But for a lot of people, they're just using it as their savings. They're just using it as their long-term savings vehicle. And of course, in the broader crypto world, there's a lot more kind of speculation. There's a lot kind of a marketing of various altcoins and whatever they're doing. Whereas I think the lightning hype train is not as much. like There's just simply not as much money to be made in hyping it. And again, with Bitcoin, it's an open source protocol. Bitcoin has no marketing team. It has companies who might have a marketing budget. But even then, those companies are usually marketing their product. It's not necessarily Bitcoin, the protocol. And similarly with Lightning, Lightning doesn't have a marketing team. There are people who talk about it and try to encourage and try to educate about it but it is still early days in the broader scheme of things. I do see more countries and potentially US states that are talking about Bitcoin legal tender. And in those cases, then yeah, absolutely. Lightning is is a great example to be used in day-to-day use. Yeah. And it just makes sense. And something that I think is really interesting and I'd love to unpack as well is with Lightning, like the adoption is one side, right? Like we've got to get people using it. The other side is that infrastructure that you touched on at the start and the requirement for nodes to make it work. Now, we have seen some really interesting movements and lots of people pushing, you know, DIY, set up your own node sets and and those sort of things. Do you think that's enough to be able to support the growth of this? So that's only one part of it. Yes, you're right. That's perhaps the hobbyist power user. Uh, Although I would encourage people to learn because you actually really do learn a lot when you set up your own Bitcoin node. But That's one part of it. And then another part of it is that there will be hosted nodes. And these will be like at an enterprise level. So you can think of similar to today where people are using a VPS, virtual private server. People are 
setting up and offering this as a service. So as an example, Voltage, I did an episode with Graham Krizak from Voltage, the CEO of Voltage. And another example is Noddle Cloud. And so as an example, they're setting up lightning nodes for businesses or even for an end consumer who wants to have that cloud node running for them to be able to do lightning stuff or other payment processing and other things like that. And the other aspect of it is some of those lightning wallets I mentioned earlier, depending on how they operate, some of them operate in different ways. Some of them actually are a Bitcoin node on your phone, but they operate in sort of a more cut down way. So as an example, Breeze, B-R-E-E-Z dot technology, if people are interested, they actually are operating a lightning node on your phone. And so they've done certain ways that obviously it's not fully like a fully fledged desktop box that's running a lightning node but it is still a truly operating lightning node. And there's certain technologies that it's using to be able to quickly catch up with what's going on on the blockchain and then quickly understand, oh, I've received money or no, I haven't. And there are service providers involved as well because when you use the lightning network, you need channels and you need liquidity. And so again, some of that is kind of technical detail that's kind of hidden under the rug inside these wallets and applications. But obviously, we're just talking about it because you know people might be interested to understand a little bit about what's the market behind this and how does that work? Because somebody's providing liquidity, somebody's opening that channel or somebody's coins are being used in that channel. And so there's a market price to be paid for that. And so that is one way in which it's being smoothed, it's being made easier and easier because some of the technical stuff is happening in the background without you having to think about it so much. It's just there. So from the user's perspective, you just pick up the wallet, you can receive into it. And if you want to pay, you scan and you pay. And people are also looking into NFC as an example. So you can tap and pay just like people do now with their credit card or you know other ways that they're already doing now. There are even Bitcoin hardware wallets that are looking into tap and pay, like effectively having an NFC technology to help them make it easy to move that information back and forward. And I think that inbound liquidity is something else that's really talked about as a pain point. But as you kind of touched on at the start and alluded to, like, what people are doing when they're doing this research and they're finding about, you know, you've got to create nodes and you've got to have inbound liquidity for it to work. You're really, again, if you draw a parallel to a bank, you're trying to figure out how the whole bank works rather than just focusing on the fact that you have a bank account and a card that allows you to tap and pay. Exactly. So with that wallet solution, is that solving that inbound liquidity for the most case as well? Generally speaking, that's the lightning answer. So basically the lightning answer to that inbound liquidity problem, as you say, is to use Lightning Service Providers, LSPs. And so these LSPs are the ones who might be operating a service where they say, okay, Alicia, you've just spun up your Breeze wallet on your phone or Breeze, and we'll open a channel to you. So you've got some incoming liquidity. Now, we might charge a fee for that. And then we might also have some other value add or other services built into that. So as an example, let's say you spin up your Breeze on your Breeze wallet or Breeze app on your phone, and you want to become a merchant, you can now receive SATs, people who want to buy your services or in person, you can show them the QR. Or that LSP will have other ways of monetizing their side of it because they might be charging either fees for the routing on that channel, or they may have some kind of revenue share agreements. If you say go and buy a voucher from these other sites using Lightning because they put it easily in the app for you, there's a marketplace there then they can make some money there. And so that's kind of how the economics of it might work out. Although it is still early days, it looks like there are liquidity providers who are playing a market role, right? They're, they're helping by providing some sats and then receiving some return for that, whether that's routing fees or revenue share or paid out of band. There's different ways that the Lightning 
ecosystem is evolving around this. Yeah, cool. And so like for everyone listening, it, all we're doing here is explaining the backend. And if you go and do your research, these are some of the pain points I guess you'll see spoken about that all do have very real world solutions for them now. So for listeners who are like, oh my goodness, I would love to get into Lightning. I want it to be this easy. For a consumer is the only thing they need to do is download the wallet and it kind of just goes from there as you've just described. That's right. And so the analogy I would make, and I often use this, is don't think you have to be a car mechanic in order to drive a car. Okay, because we're talking about some of the, you know, in the guts of it, the technical, you know, if you just want to drive the car, just pick up a car and use the car. That's, you know, (laughs) there's all the safety testing and all this other stuff going on. But basically, that's where some of the easy wallets like Phoenix, Breeze, Moon Wallet, these are some of the examples that users can just use and you just pick it up, you can receive into it. And some of these also have like a swapping function built in as well. So you can send in Bitcoin and it will automatically swap it into Lightning for you or you can receive in Lightning. And let's say you need to pay out to a Bitcoin invoice, they've also got to swap out. So they can take Lightning funds and swap it out on-chain if you need to make an on-chain payment also. So these are some of the examples that are operating today and actually quite easy to use. Mm -hmm. And do you think, like, in order to get more adoption of this, do you think it's going to need a government push like we've seen in El Salvador? Or is it something that you think will organically grow? Oh, look, I, I definitely believe it will be put it this way, it could grow organically, but we may also see some governments who try to push it as well, just like we saw in El Salvador. Because look, El Salvador was the first one, but there'll be others. There's talk now that Tonga may be next, uh, or at least later this year. There's a Texas governor candidate, Don Huffins, who's talking about making Bitcoin legal tender in the state of Texas, which is massive, right? Like if he wins and he makes Bitcoin legal tender, like that would be incredible, right? And there is also And Arizona, I'm not sure if she's a senator or a congresswoman, but uh, she wanted to put in a bill to make Bitcoin legal tender in Arizona. And these are just four examples that we're just pulling off the top of our heads. I'm sure there are other countries out there who might be looking at this or thinking about this. And so I see that legal tender law being really interesting because that might take away some of the capital gains tax aspects. Because right now, people who are spending Bitcoin without some kind of de minimis capital gains exemption, they are having to do record keeping and do things for that unless they are in a country where they don't have capital gains tax, right? Singapore, let's say in Dubai, in the UAE, or Germany after one year, Switzerland, no capital gains tax, Um, Portugal, no capital gains tax on Bitcoin, some others out there that have, let's say, beneficial laws from a Bitcoin spending point of view. Yeah. And I think you've lived and briefed this as well. You've, You've seen and watched this from the start. What sort of benefits have you seen El Salvador in particular has incorporated this? Like what could come from that? You've mentioned the accessibility through lower KYC requirements. You've mentioned just now capital gains. Is there anything else? So for El Salvador, they have seen a lot of tourism as well. So I think that's really interesting because they have been able to drive some tourism and maybe they'll be able to drive investment from their side. And so they may even do some kind of citizenship by investment program or something like that. I mean, who knows, right? That's a rumor. But the part they've they've definitely said is they were offering residency by investment. Now, whether later they offer something like citizenship as well, that could be also be an angle where they might get revenue out of this. There are opportunities for people to set up businesses and more easily take payment and more easily save themselves some money from a remittance point of view. I think for most people around the world, though, it should just be thought of as savings technology, right? Now, of course, you can pay with it too. But I think for most people, it's still 
useful to think of it as just save into this thing and just save for the long term. And that's really the most effective way. I think like just the, if I had to give someone just a simple one sentence message, just use it as your savings technology. But there's all these other things you can do with it too. Definitely. And what about you now on your journey? What what do you think is next this year? It's been pretty volatile year to start off with. Where do you think we're heading? So again, I don't have a crystal ball, but um, my guess is that we're going to see continual adoption of people buying in. The way I've seen Bitcoin move is it does these two steps forward, one step back moves. It's almost like a dance. And so that's what we've seen, right? It kind of moves up a bit, then it kind of comes down, and then it goes up again yeah, and sort of does these cycles. And so my speculation is that we're still in an overall uptrend, like we're still going to see more people coming in. And we're seeing this as an example, we're seeing some rich investors and people like Bill Miller come out and say, yeah, I've still got half of my personal account in Bitcoin. And that was even when Bitcoin had dipped to, let's say, 30,000 in that range. Whereas now, as we speak, we're, I don't know, 44,000, something like that in US dollar terms for one Bitcoin. So I see it as just general and gradual adoption. We're seeing more and more businesses who want to adopt. And we're seeing that even for us over at Swan Private, we're seeing businesses who want to you know, come and buy Bitcoin because they see the problems of inflation. And so I think that problem is just getting more and more real for people, especially over these last two years, let's say. The problem of inflation has become so much more prevalent in people's minds so that now they're looking for alternatives. And that's what we're seeing. We're seeing a lot of small business people and medium-sized businesses who are interested to save and they see the problem of fiat money. So that's another thing I often say with Bitcoin is if you don't see the problem of fiat money and the fiat money system, you won't really get why Bitcoin. You won't understand the why of Bitcoin. And so I think it's important to understand that problem. And then you can start thinking about, okay, why is Bitcoin an answer? Why is it a solution to this problem? And it's for someone who is feeling that right now, they're like, I've got an inkling of I know what's wrong, but not really understanding it. Is there anything you'd recommend they go and read or research they could do to really unpack the things that this is solving? Right. And so I would say I've got episodes of my show. Of course, I've done over 300, but probably one episode that would be really good for people is episode 51 of my show. So stefanlevera.com slash 51. And that show, we really talk through some of the problems of fiat money. And what are the cultural consequences and problems brought about by fiat money? And I think that will hopefully give people more of an understanding about how we got where we are now. And then I think as you go down the Bitcoin education journey, you start to understand why Bitcoin is an answer to these things and why it's going to be such an important technology for the world. It's a journey. And I would say sometimes if you're listening now and you're you're thinking, whoa, I'm a little overwhelmed right now, don't be. Don't get stuck in that analysis paralysis. The important thing is to get started and to start learning. And so obviously, there's all kinds of resources out there, right? Like my podcast or you know, even uh, Swan Bitcoin, there's a bunch of books we make available for free for people. So for example, Inventing Bitcoin is a free book available, swanbitcoin.com slash free book. And it's a free explainer. And it's very simple. It's one or two hours on Bitcoin. And it's by Jan Pritzker, who's our CTO, but it's also a well-recommended book just in the industry. And so there's all kinds of free resources that I think people should be consuming because this is going to be important and it's worth the time, right? So what I would say is there are a lot of people who might have just done a toe-dipping amount of Bitcoin. 
but you really need to go deep and it's worth your while to go deep. Yeah. And I think that helps you through all the volatility. You're looking at your portfolio now and you're just thinking, oh my God, what have I done? Especially if you've just joined us in December. This is the long play. And again, this is going back to the tech behind it so much in today's episode that it's not just something you're buying to invest in. It's actually a, a whole world-changing, economy-changing thing that's really, really important to understand. And it is life-changing if you do understand it. So we'll pop all of that in the show notes, Stefan. And thank you so much for joining us today. It has been a pleasure having you on. Thanks for inviting me. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us for today's show. If you liked it, don't forget to head over to the gram and join us at Tapping Into Crypto. And before we finish up, just a general disclaimer that this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. And the opinions on this podcast belong to individuals and are not affiliated with any companies mentioned. Any advice is general in nature and does not take into account your own personal situation. If you're looking to get advice, please seek out the help of a licensed financial advisor. We'll talk to you soon. 